you would take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 1. In case you weren't here last week, I want to give, give a just summary uh, of where we were. We're, we started walking through the book of Jonah last week. And let me just uh, remind us of where we are. I, and I spoke, first of all, last week about Jonah's life before we get to the book of Jonah. What was his life like? In 2 Kings 14, 25, God calls Jonah his servant. So God says, Jonah, you are my servant. Secondly, we saw from that that Jonah received a word from the Lord, and Jonah spoke it to, to Jeroboam II. And he spoke it to him in such a way that it came true. And so Jonah, as he received the word and he, and he spoke the word to the people, they saw that it came to be true, and it gave credence that Jonah was a true prophet of the Lord. So he is a servant of the Lord who spoke the words of the Lord. And then Amos 3.7 says this, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servant, the prophets. So God in the Old Testament time would come, He would speak to a man who was a prophet, and He would share His secret, what the, what the nation needed to hear. So Jonah was one of these men. God came and spoke to him. Now we know from 2 Kings 14 that this is at least one instance, but we don't know if there were a number of other instances where God came and he shared something with Jonah. So God shares the secret, Jonah proclaims it. We saw last week, fourthly, that marked, that marked his life is that Old Testament prophets were also called seers. And so they were called this because they had unique insight as God shared his secrets with them. They would go and they would share that, but they would have insight first in what was going on in the nation as God shared his heart with them. And fifthly, Jonah's life before the book of Jonah is uh, Jonah spoke and he lived with the authority of God. So as a servant of God, he had the servant's authority because God spoke to him, empowered him to go and speak. And then we began to walk through the text, and we looked at the, we looked at the first three verses of Jonah. So let's read those, and, and I just want to remind us of where we were last week. If you look up on the screen, these are scenes of uh, ancient Nineveh. Here it is. It's still there. It's in modern-day Iraq. They were the Assyrians. And this is a little bit of the city, um, and we're going to talk more about that in the days ahead. But you can kind of see a little bit of what remains and what has been restored um, from ancient times. Last week I talked, you can see that tower right there. Um, uh, the walls of Nineveh were so wide and so thick um, that you could put three chariots side by side to one another. And so this was an ancient marvel of architecture and the things that they did. Just a pretty amazing place. Uh, that Jonah was called to go and preach to. So look with me in Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. Let's look at that. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up against me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, and from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So let me just talk, touch on what we looked at in the heart of the message last week. And the first was simply this, is that Jonah had a, 
a, received a revelation from the Lord. So God comes to Jonah one day, opens up himself and says, Jonah, here, here, here's who I am, here's what I want you to do. And so God reveals himself and he gives his word to Jonah. So Jonah receives the revelation of God. Secondly, we looked at last week that God gave his word and he gave his revelation to those he was in relationship with. So Jonah's walking with the Lord. He is, he's got this great relationship. He's got this authority on his life. God is sharing his secrets with Jonah. Jonah is in relationship. So God reveals himself, reveals his purpose and plan. Jonah's in relationship with God. And then we talked about the responsibility of Jonah. Three things. He was, in verse 2, he was to arise, he was to go to Nineveh, and he was to call out to Nineveh, and he was to say to Nineveh, you need to repent because your sin has reached God, and God is concerned about what's going on. And so three things in responsibility. He was to get up, he was to arise, He was to go to Nineveh, that great city, great powerful, great evil, all kinds of things. One of the greatest cities at that time had been started by Nimrod. You can go all the way back to the early part of Genesis. And this city had been built, it had been about a thousand years old at this time when we come to the book of Jonah. So this is responsibility. He is to go to the city and he is to preach. And here's what happened with Jonah and kind of where things ended last week is that Jonah, in his heart, was a man of God, loved God, but now God comes and says, this is what I want you to do. And Jonah's like, well, I don't like that, God. And so, God, I'm going to reject that. And I'm going to reject it in such a way that I'm going to run from what you said. And, and I know I'm your servant, and I know you've shared your secret with me, what you want me to go and do, but I'm not going to join in with that God. And so Jonah begins this process of running from who he is, running from God, and trying to get as far away from the responsibility that God has entrusted. And so he rejects God's presence, and he rejects God's word, and he becomes a reckless, running prophet. He's reluctant to follow through with what God wants for him. Let me just briefly share two more things by way of introduction before we get to verse 4 this morning. Two big things that stand out in verses 1 through 3. And, and one is simply this, is that there's a failure in Jonah's life to hold fast to the word of God. The writer of Hebrews wrote to a group of believers who are under um, some pretty good persecution. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, listen to what it says. Therefore, we must, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, this message that has come to us, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So so the writer's writing to this group of believers and saying this, your faith... Your relationship with God is going to drift. You're going to kind of move away, and it may be subtle at first, and it's going to come when you begin to neglect the revelation of God. This is what happens to Jonah. God comes, reveals himself, gives his word. Jonah doesn't like it. He's not casually drifting. He is willfully running away from what God has shared with him. But the word is absolutely critical. And when you and I begin to drift from the word of God a complete disintegration of faith begins to commence. It just always happens. A drifting from the Word 
is that it happens. It happens in a church, it happens in a family, and it happens in a life. The second thing to note about Jonah as we come to verse 4 is this, is he is angry at God. I don't know if you've ever been angry at God, but Jonah is pretty angry at God. I think he's angry that God has come to him, he's disrupted his life, he's called him to go to Israel's enemies, and it's just a little bit too much for Jonah to take in. Um, did God not know that Jonah's life was going pretty well? I mean, come on, God, did you not know things were going well for me? And now you've come in and you want me to go on a missionary trip all the way to Nineveh, and I don't want to do that. And the proof of his anger is his desire to get away from God's presence. If you're angry at someone and you're really fired up at them, you're not wanting to go out to eat, you're not wanting to hang out, go on a walk where you hold hands, you're angry. I don't want to be in your presence. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Jonah is so angry at the call of God upon his life and what God wants him to do that Jonah in his mind decides, I'm going to flee from the presence of God. Now he knows, I believe, that he can't fully get away from God. But here's what I think the idea in his mind is of getting away from the presence of God. If I can get far away from where God spoke to me and where the revelation is, and I can get far away from that as possible, then God likely will find another prophet in Israel to go to Nineveh and to fulfill his work. And so he's very upset at God. Now there there is something called righteous anger. And sometimes you and I can have that. God always has righteous anger. And here's why. God's nature, foundationally, is that He is holy. He is other than us. So when God is angry, it flows out of His nature, which is always righteous and holy. So anytime God is angry, it is a righteous anger. We are not that way. We are sinful. And so sometimes we can have the heart of God as well, and we can have a righteous anger about something. But most of the time, if we were honest, our anger is... Because somebody hasn't done what we want them to do. And so we're upset at that. And so our anger flows the majority of the time out of sinfulness. And this is exactly what has taken place in Jonah's life. So often we live with that my way or the highway or my will be done. And Jonah is at that place where he wants his will to be done. And this is where we meet Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, he is full of self-pity. He is apathetic. He is sad. He is upset, he is running, and he is fully engaged in his anger at God because of what God wants him to do. All right, let's look at verse 4, and we're going to read down through 6 first, and then we're going to talk about um, these verses. So he's gotten into the boat. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled, or sent, appointed, a great wind upon the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, he had gone down in the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. That we may not perish. So let's talk about this. The first thing I want to see this talk about this morning is the intervention of God. And so I want to ask this question: Is God more angry at him, or is God intervening in his life? And I think this is an intervention in God's life. I've been studying Jonah now for a couple of months, just kind of getting ready and reading ahead and praying. 
And one of the things that incredibly stood out to me this week, and it did a little bit last week as well, but really full on this week. God is pursuing Jonah. Jonah wants to have nothing to do with God. He is trying to get as far away from God as he can, and yet God is doing this. He's pursuing Jonah. And I was reminded this week that the love of God is so unlike anything we can find in this world today. Find anybody whom you say, I am mad at you. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to live this way. I'm angry at you, and I'm going to run and run and run and be away from you. Find somebody who for your life is going to pursue you. And that's exactly what he's doing. So this, this book, these four chapters, with this rebellious, reluctant prophet, is a beautiful picture of how God pursues those who don't have a faithful heart and are wrestling with things. And I'll say this to you today. We ought to just lift our hands right now and say thank you. Thank you. Because here's the reality. Is we, before we're just too harsh on Jonah and go, I would never be that way. We are very much like him. That may not be with the dominant part of our life, but there might be an area of our life that we just say, God, you're not going to have this. And I'm going to run from you. And I'm going to hold on to this. And I'm going to go to Tarshish. I'm going to... I'm going to go down to Joppa, and I'm going to get on a boat, and I'm gone, God, and, and, and you can't have this part of my life. So I think this is an intervention, this storm. Jonah don't want anything to do with God, but God comes in, and I believe sometimes God can, and he will intervene in the times of our running. And to be honest with you, we want him to do this. We want him to do this. Because out there, away from him, that's a pseudo-life. It's okay for a while, but it's going to end in tragedy. It always does. Because this world is God's world. And he set it up in a certain way that if you want to experience real life, you will walk with God. And particularly for those of us who know him, like Jonah. Jonah knew God. If you're here today and you're running from God and you know God, um, you're like him. And you're not going to find life running from him. You're going to find life being near him and being close to him. So this is... And intervention. And so as we come to the scene of this, an initial question is, so is this a punishment from God, the storm, or is this an intervention? And I believe it's an intervention. God does three things in this intervention. One, um, he hurls a wind at it. Uh, he brings a tempest. It causes a tempest on the sea. And then he begins to break up the vessel. So let's talk about those things just for a moment. First of all is this, is God hurls the wind. Y'all remember when King Saul picked up the, the spear and threw it at David? And tried to kill David with it. Uh, that's the same Hebrew word that's used here. That Saul picked that up and he threw the, the spear at David to try to, to kill David. It's the exact same word here. So Jonah gets in the boat. The boat is, is going away from Joppa. Probably going along the shoreline. So uh, we'll see in a, in a little bit that they try to row back. So they've not headed out to the middle of the Mediterranean. They're probably going along the coastline in case they need to pull off or anything. And so, so here they are. God hurls throws like a spear a wind and it's a violent wind we'll see in a moment it's such violent that these experienced mariners recognize this is not natural wind we've never seen this before this is something really really big and so God hurls the wind at Jonah at at the boat but it's really at Jonah and here's what he's telling Jonah oh you can go but watch this you're not going to go because I I'm in control of things and I'm going to bring you to a place that you're going to do what I want you to do, and I think this wind is sent their way out of a heart of love. Well, the wind brings a tempest. 
there's a phrase called tempest in a teapot. I don't know what that fully means, but I think it means something pretty churned up. And so there's this violence with the wind that begins to churn up the sea. And it's pretty incredible. And Jonah's down below and he's sleeping. Kind of reminds us of Matthew chapter 8. You remember when somebody else is asleep in a boat? Well, he's not Jesus. Is Jonah is a imperfect picture at times of who Jesus is because all these Old Testament books kind of point us and sometimes they're not always, they're shadows, they're not perfect. So here's a little shadow of Jesus. Jonah's down below in the midst of the storm sleeping, but he is because he's likely probably depressed. He's been upset. If you know if you've ever been angry and you've been upset that there's a lethargy in the sleep that's pretty strong that you can sleep through anything. And so he likely is what's going on. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus is asleep, and he's asleep not because he's running from the Lord, but because he's completely trusting in his Father. He knows the Father's got everything at hand, and so Jesus is at sleep in the boat in Matthew chapter 8. Listen to this, these two Psalms. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, 5 through 7 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on the earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and listen to this, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So the psalmist writes that God's got these storehouses where all this wind is there. Jonah gets in the boat and he's going to Tarshish and God just opens up the storehouses and the wind comes and it just thrown like a spear, churns up the ocean. This tempest is happening and taking place and the psalmist says God is in heaven. He does what he pleases and his great pleasure at the moment is to say to a reckless, rebellious, running prophet, I am in charge. I'm in charge, and my pleasure right now is to stop your running. And I've been there before where you're kind of running from the Lord, and God has intervened, and he stepped in. And I look back on those moments and just say, thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you that your great pleasure was to catch me in my rebellion, to stop my running so that I could come back to you. The third thing God does in his intervention, so he hurls the wind it stirs up the ocean, his great pleasure to stop Jonah's running. Thirdly, is he begins to break up the vessel that Jonah thought was going to be his escape. So the boat's breaking. This is not just a wind, but it's waves and it's pounding. Just pounding against the boat. This is not a raft. This is a big ship that's got oars. We, everything's Viking now. We just love Vikings now. It's funny how we just all get on to things, but we've seen those Viking ships, and we've got the big oars. Multiple. It's probably a ship really big like that. It's got sails, but it's also got oars, and so it's got all this. It's got cargo on it, and so they've got lots of stuff. Later on, the mariners that are going to sacrifice an animal, so there's likely animals on board, and here they are, ship is breaking up. Jonah thinks this is the vessel to my escape from the presence of God. And what Jonah thought would become his vessel of escape becomes an instrument that God's going to use to bring him back to himself. And God just does that. He intervenes in those ways. God still does this. Here's what he does. He destroys our fake, empty lives that we think is life and we think is going to lead us somewhere. And he just steps in and he does this. Secondly, this morning, Let's look at the downward spiral of sin. Look at verse 5. 
So then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Don't overlook those words down. If you go up to verse 3, down is used twice again. So four times the word down in verse 3 and in verse 5 is used. And I think this is more than something physical that Jonah had done. He had gone down to Joppa. He had gone and paid the fare to get there. He had gone down in the bottom of the sheep, uh, ship. He had laid down in that. And I think this is a spiritual picture from a physical thing that his life is just spiraling out of control and he's gone down. He is down away from the Lord and sin is taking over. And up top, while Jonah's asleep, just just fast asleep, there's a prayer meeting going on in the midst of the storm. All the mariners are up there, and they are calling out to their gods. They recognize something's up here, and it's a big deal. And and this, this sleeping, this going down of Jonah describes that his life is just spiraling out of control. And the storm became a spiritual matter for every single person that was on board. This was not a normal storm it became a spiritual matter so much that everybody's crying out to their god everybody on board's guilty these are lost mariners they worship idols they probably participate in a lot of immorality and so here's jonah he's in sin he's running from the lord nobody on board has any fear of god and And particularly with Jonah, he just spiraled down and down and down. And listen to this about sin. Sometimes in our sin, we don't necessarily get more bold in our sin publicly. We just sink deeper in its flood. And we just seem to get stuck. We just, this is with Jonah. And sometimes there's an aspect of our spiritual lives where there's so much grief and and depression, anxiety, whatever you might want to call it, just overwhelmness of it, that it produces. If you've ever been there before, you just want to sleep when you're depressed. Just want to sleep. And sometimes this grief that we have, whether it's spiritual or or otherwise, it produces a deep sleep, but it's never pleasure sleep. And I think that's where Joni is. Uh, We don't know how long. Has it been a couple of months since God came to him and he's just run away? He's kind of thought things and instead of going to Nineveh, He's kind of thought, what am I going to do? And, and again, here he goes, and he is likely depressed, and he's gone down in the boat, and he's asleep. And it, he, he's there because of this spiral, downward spiral, of where he is. Now, again, there's a prayer meeting going up top. And these consciences of these heathen men seem to be more tender to the sympathies in the ear of their gods than Jonah was to the only God, Yahweh. So here's Jonah down below. You ever been out in the ocean, maybe on a raft or a floaty, and you, you've, you can see everybody maybe where your towel is or somebody around the beach, and you're on that, and all of a sudden, what do the currents do? After a while, you're just further away, right? You're not in front of that anymore, and I, this has happened. There's just a drift when our heart isn't connected and holding fast to God's Word. And, and for Jonah, the drift wasn't there. It was a choice that he made, and he made this choice. And look what 5 and 6 say to us. This is pretty interesting. I love the way God does things and he plays on things in the midst of it. Jonah 1, 5, second part there. 
But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God would, your God or the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now they have no idea yet who Jonah worships, but Jonah has lost all perspective on the current matters. Chaos is abounding above. They've got this great prayer meeting, and he's just down below, and he is sleeping. And he's sleeping the sleep, God's prophet, of self-complacency. Pagan sailors know they're about to sleep or about to perish. Um, They're crying out to their gods. Jonah's not praying. He's sleeping. When he's awaking, it takes some initial strong questions to kind of wake him up. Now, the irony of ironies is in these verses. In verse 2, God comes to Jonah, reveals himself, and says this, Jonah, get up and go call out. Captain comes. Sleeper, wake up, says the exact same thing that God had told him in verse 2. Arise, get up, and call out to your God. And Jonah must have woken up going, can I not get away from God? God's voice. Captain says exactly what God said to Jonah in verse 2. Get up, sleeper, call out to your God. Arise and call out. So the captain calls him. God's voice, I think, again, and Jonah probably thinking, this is a nightmare. I cannot get away from these words. Now, let me talk about these sailors in this prayer meeting. Atheism is more of a modern thing. It's more Western. Back in those days, there was no atheism back in those days. Everybody believed in the God. Everybody was spiritual, and most people outside of, just about, well, everybody outside of Israel, only nation, monotheistic, everybody had many gods. So here they were. There were family gods that helped, or individual gods that kind of helped you in individual matters. There were family gods or clan gods that in your clan, in your family, you had certain gods that you prayed to, and then your people group had national gods and idols that you called out to. So these guys are up top. And they're calling out, uh, man, family God, will you help? Uh, clan God, will you help? Individual God, will you help? National God, will you help? And they're just crying and crying and crying out to their gods and, and, and no hearing, no work, no move from the gods. And Jonah's asleep down there. Listen to what Paul said. This is Ephesians 5.13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In repentance, Jonah's woken up, and he could have in repentance. Could have said, okay, God... I'm on board now. I'm not going to run. I repent. I'm going to get with you. And God's light there in the midst of the storm could have shone on Jonah. But he just still is refusing to bow. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to bow. And here's Jonah. He's wasting time, foolish steps, being evil in days that are evil and rebelling against God. And don't be foolish, Paul says. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Jonah knows what God's will is. He just doesn't want to have any part of it and so wake up arise call out to your God 
What are you sleeping in the boat for? Well, look at verse 7 now. Let's read 7 through 9. And so they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come to us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now just picture this. Tempest. Boat. Cracking. Being pounded. Wind. Rocking back and forth. Okay, we've cried out to our gods. We've had our prayer meeting to no avail. We've got this guy up here. Everybody on the ship is up here. And so they reach into their pocket. Somebody's got some dice. Let's start throwing the dice. So they do it. They go to every single person. Throw the dice. Okay, it's not you. Throw the dice. Now in those days, we have numbers on our dice. In those days, they had dark colors and light colors all over their dice. Two dark colors, if they were on top, that meant No. Two light colors, it meant yes. A light and a dark meant you roll them again. Watch this. They go to every single person, roll in the dice. No, no, no. Until it comes to Jonah, two light colors, yes. Guess who's in control of the dice? God is. So again, Jonah must have been sitting there going, okay, captains said the same words of God. Okay, yeah, I'm the problem. He probably is thinking, I'm the problem. Casting of the lots indicates you are the problem. Listen to what Proverbs 16.33 says. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so God's guiding in the midst of the boat, just going crazy, in the midst of rolling the dice, and it lands perfectly against everybody else and lands perfectly for Jonah. And they say to him, tell us on account why this evil has come upon us. And again, they don't see this as a natural storm. Something violent and God-sized is happening and take place. Jonah now is clearly the problem, but why is he the problem? So they ask him a series of questions. What's your occupation? He's going to tell them, I'm a prophet. I'm running from the Lord. Where do you come from? Well, I'm from Galilee. I'm from Gath Heifer. It's in Galilee. So what country is that? Well, I'm an Israelite. And what people are you? Well, I'm a Hebrew. The Jews, when they would speak to foreigners and they would ask, where are you from? They would use this word, Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. And it indicated that they were part of the people of God. And fourthly, this morning is just simply this. And I want you to notice this. Notice that his recklessness has involved other people in his sin. And it's caused problem for them. So just a word of application to all of us. If you're a father or you're a mother in the room this morning and you're living a life of sin, it's going to affect your family. If you are a worker in a business and you are living a life of sin, lack of integrity, it's going to harm the business. Why? Because God has ordained His world to be about truth. If you're here in this room today and you are running from the Lord willfully, your sin will find you out and your sin's going to affect other people. We don't sin and it just stays with us, does it? We sin and it affects everyone. So Jonah's recklessness has now involved everybody on board and they're like, okay, Lot is found on you. What is your deal? What is up with you? And so he tells them, I'm a Hebrew. And then he says the words, and I fear the Lord. Do you see any fear of the Lord in Jonah's life at this moment? No. 
Here he tells them, listen, my God is Yahweh. He's the Lord. And I think the reason he says the Lord is because not all the Israelites worshipped Yahweh. They also worshipped the Baals. So he's clearly identifying, I'm a worshiper of the Lord, Yahweh, um, and that's who I am, and I fear the Lord. To fear the Lord means to be in awe of Him, and when you're in awe of Him, it causes you to submit, and it causes us to draw near, this awe does. There's no drawing near. So watch what Jonah does. He, we never fell at this, and I'll put myself He has learned how to speak the language. So he's in a setting and he says, well, I'm a worshiper of the Lord. And no, he's not. He's not. But he's learned the language. He learns what he should say, even though in the moment that is not there. We call it hypocrisy. He has learned what to say and what he has just said is not true of his life. It's that idea of one foot in, one foot out. I'm not really going to be involved in either one of them. I'm not going to have a passion. I'm just going to do whatever. And his hypocrisy has affected everybody in his life around him. And his running has brought them into his sin. um, Not indirectly, but directly. Completely directly. Sin has an impact on others. Look at verse 10 now. So not only are they afraid of the storm, but now they've learned that Jonah's God is bothered by Jonah, and Jonah's running from the Lord, and this storm has come, and the wind has come, and it's breaking up because of Jonah's God. Look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. That means a lot. Okay, y'all get that? Okay, exceedingly, that's a lot. And said to him, what is this you have done? It's not a question. There's no question mark there. You see that? It's a statement. What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because there on the deck Jonah tells them this is exactly what he is doing. Jonah now knows that his running is not going to work. The suddenness of the storm, the lot of the dice has fallen upon him. And so he just tells them everything. Look, I'm a Hebrew. Um, I fear the Lord. It's not really true, but um, he's the, this Lord is the God of heaven. And uh, he made the sea and he made the dry land. Watch this. Listen. This is the fifth point this morning. They rebuke the prophet of God. These lost people do. They rebuke him. And so they say to him, they say, what have you done? And I think the world's great issue with Christianity, particularly in the West, is that we confess and we sing a lot of things. But outside of here, we live differently. And here these men are on the ship. Jonah's like, I'm running from the presence of of my God. He's told me to go do something. I don't really have any interest of that. He's involved them directly in his sin. And here it is. They say to him, you're crazy. What's your problem? We're not even running from our God. We would never run from our gods. And you're running from your God? Do you really think that you can get beyond him? You can run away from him. And it's a statement of shock. They are incredibly surprised. They cannot fathom one would try to do this. To offend God by running. And for the sailors now, it says they're exceedingly afraid. Not only was the storm bad enough, but now they've got a rebellious prophet in their midst. And they don't know what to do with him. What are they going to do? What's the solution? And so he tells them, 
I've done it all. Now, I just want to talk about this just for a moment. And I don't mean to offend, but so be it if it offends. I think we have so much of the problems we have in this nation today because God's people for a long time have not been God's people. And we're quiet. And and God has called His people to boldly, passionately live for Him. And there's a devastation of our inconsistency of our faith that I think has brought a dramatic effect upon our country. It happens and it affects our neighborhoods, it affects our families, it affects our own personal lives, it affects our finances, it affects so many things. So I wrote some things down this week about the devastation of our inconsistency. Just like as they rebuke Jonah, I think the world rebukes us. Why do believers who are called by God to have an eternal mindset get so caught up in the trivial things of time that hold no value? I think the world looks at us and wonders. You say this, but man, you want a bigger house like I do. You want more money like I do. You want the glorious vacations like I do. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but at some point in time, isn't it enough? Isn't it enough? We just let go of all that. I think the world also looks at us and says, why do y'all say that you have so much faith and yet your faith just has no love in it? Just no love that's there. I think the world looks at us and says, y'all claim to have such a knowledge of God and yet you live with a reckless, irresponsible disobedience. Fourthly, why are we so favored by Christ and we are, folks? If you have salvation today, we are so favored by him. Why are we favored by Christ and yet we live resisting and rejecting that favor? By thinking, well, I can just do whatever I want to do and God's favor is going to continue to rest. And I think we've fooled ourselves that his favor is resting upon us when we're just like Jonah. There's no favor there. Now, again, I want to remind you, doesn't mean that God's not pursuing us. But you, not, you and I need to not fool ourselves to think that that because he's withholding and letting us on a leash go somewhere, that that's favor in our sin. It's not favor. He's going to pull that leash, doesn't he? He's going to pull it. And it's going to hurt. You ever pulled your dog <laughs> trying to run away and you pull? Yeah. It's kind of violent and crazy rocking. And God does that. And he's doing it with Jonah right now. And here are the lost saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they rebuke Jonah. Why do you not believe in your God, Jonah? Why do you not believe in your God? And Jonah should have been carrying the burden with passion to go preach in Nineveh. And he's trying to get to southwest Spain. Away from God. What Jonah recognizes now, in case he's not fully dead spiritually, he recognizes he's the problem. Look at verse 11. So they said to him, What more shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Do you notice? They're like, okay, we want to distance ourselves from you. Okay, how do we distance ourselves? What what can we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Isn't that a great word, tempestuous? And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. As with all problems in our life, we're trying to figure out what's the solution. So now they know, Jonah, you're the guilty party. The lots fell on you. You've now confessed what the issue is. 
Um, we're asking you, what do we do? You're the expert on the hand on hand. This is your guide. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? And again, they're wanting to distance themselves. And so Jonah, they're saying to Jonah, you're the author of the sin. So can you kind of give us a hint as to what we need to do? And Jonah, all through this, has a chance to say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. God, God, I repent. I repent. <sighs> just, just not interested. Just has no interest at all. He has recognition, I'm the problem, but I'm not going to repent. And Christ follower, will say something to us. When we recognize that we're the issue, then we've got to take responsibility and repent of our sin and deal with it. And Jonah recognizes it, but he doesn't want to repent. So here's what Jonah says. You've got to kill me. If you'll kill me, he's wrong. It's not the answer, but he just comes up. Again, watch this. He's saying this. I would rather die than be obedient to God. So just throw me overboard, and I'm willing to die, and everything will be okay. And watch this. He plays the role of a martyr, but he is not a martyr. Martyrs die for the glory of God, and his death is not going to bring glory to God. And so he kind of plays the martyr, and he recognizes what the problem is, and watch what he does, and then he misrepresents God. Go to chapter 4 just for a moment of Jonah. We looked at this last week, but it's important to contrast what's happening here. Chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, look what he knows about God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And look what he says, and relenting from disaster. Here he is, he's in a disaster. Storm is there. He knows God is the one who can bring the relenting from the disaster. He can calm it down. And watch what he does. He misrepresents who God is. And here's what he says. My God is so cranky and mad all the time that when you run like this, he just gets mad and he stirs storms up and he's just angry all the time. And so he misrepresents who God is. Does he know who God is? Absolutely. 4-2 tells us that he knows exactly who God is. But here on the boat, he mis misrepresents God. And he maybe in that moment had forgotten about this. I don't know. But here he is. He just said, just kill me. And my angry, cranky God who's behind all of this because this is what he does when he doesn't get his way. He'll relent and the storm will pass. So he recognizes what's wrong without repentance. Eve, watch this. Watch how awesome God is. In the midst of rebellious prophet, not wanting to go to Nineveh and not on the boat wanting to repent, faith springs up. These pagan sailors kind of look at the situation and I think God's doing something and he's always doing something and he does something in their lives look at 13 through 16 nevertheless the men rode hard to get back to dry land but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them and therefore they called out to their God O Lord let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now stop for a moment. Is that not a switch from earlier? Calling out to my personal gods, calling out to my clan gods, calling out to my national gods. Okay, no, I'm a prophet of God, 
and, and I'm running from him. And so he's intervening here. And now these lost pagan sailors recognize there's someone bigger than their gods. And it's moving them to a place of faith and seeing how, who God is. And so 15 says they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And that moment, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. There's that word again. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So they're not far from the sea, and so they get on their oars. They think, okay, we don't want innocent blood on us. Can we get back to shore? And they begin to row back, but it just says the storm grew more violent. God was saying, no, it's not going to happen. This word rode hard, the word hard in the Hebrew means to break down a wall, like you're trying to break down a wall. So there's like this wall of water that's there, and they're trying to row, and they're just hitting it, and they're trying to break through to get back to shore, and they can't get there. And so God's just saying, no, this is not going to happen. And in their rowing and calling out to God, they reveal that they are, watch, more concerned about Jonah's life than Jonah was concerned about the Ninevites' lives. And they're concerned about him. And here's a follower of God who's out and away from God's will. And the, war, the world tries to help him to no avail. And sometimes Christians living willfully out of God's will will be some of the most difficult people that you can, live, you can be around. To the lost world, not just to the church, but to the lost world. And these guys are having some problems. So they call out to the Lord. And again, these lost sailors now in this moment are willing to do whatever Yahweh wants them to do. Lord, what, what do you want us to do? We're willing to do it. And Jonah's still there, and he's not willing to comply with God's words or God's will. So they pick him up, throw him overboard. And watch this. The words here are very exact. Chaos, tempestuous, hurling wind from the storehouses of God. That fast, calm. And those mariners, Jonah, is in calm water, by the way. And they're looking around and going, his God is the real God. And the scripture tells us here that there was a progression to their fear. They feared the storm in the beginning. Then they feared the creator of the storm. And now they fear God himself they get it and they understand and here's what they do they fear the lord they sacrifice to the lord and they made vows now i've been reading on this as i share with you for a while now and there's some commentary taters who say um well they just made yahweh be a part of all their other polyistic gods and i think we need to be careful about that because has not god rescued just pagan people in the most unique ways and i think these guys came to a place to recognize it's not our gods that we've been calling out to, it's the Lord. Look at verse 17 now. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's finally cast, cast into the sea. And if you look at the first part of that, and the Lord appointed, this word appointed, this is all through the book of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 6, he prepares a plant. 4, 7, he prepared a worm. Uh, 4.8, he prepared a scorching east wind, and now he prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God sends and appoints things for us in our lives. This word prepared means not to create, but to determine or to appoint something. So all of God's creatures say yes to God. It's human beings that say no. 
So God's commanded and appointed this great fish to come and to swallow Jonah. Greek word, Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and it just means great fish. It just means fish, something really, really big, by the way. It's not a perch. It's not a goldfish. This is a big fish. And I've read this week, and it's just crazy. You know, the world looks at us and goes, y'all, you Christians, y'all are foolish for the things that y'all believe that are in the Bible. And I just want to say back to them, y'all's attempts as scoffers to undermine the Scripture Y'all have some pretty idiotic things that you want to say. So here's some of the things that try to explain away Jonah being swallowed by the fish. When he fell out into the water, there was a whale that was dead that was floating there. And so Jonah climbed on top of the well and held on until he could get back to dry land. That's one of the explanations. Another one was a ship came by and found Jonah in the water. And it had a fish on the front of it. And so Jonah, when they rescued him out of that, he just used that to say a great fish, a boat, came and pulled me out of the water. Some have even said this is a Phoenician myth that describes Hercules and a sea monster. Um, Some have even said as well, it was a popular one for a while, is that Jonah, when he got back to shore, he found an inn that had a fish symbol on the door, and so that's where he went in once he got to dry land, and so he just kind of made up the story to go along with this. And And here's what I think. I think our God's pretty big. And I think he prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And I think it really happened. Let me give you a description. So let's ask a question. Is this true? Did he really get swallowed by a fish? Well, Jesus said he did. You like Jesus. I like Jesus. Um, I think Jesus' words are okay. So... um, Jesus said this happened, so I'm, I'm, I'm on board with Jesus, okay? And so Jesus said this absolutely happened. And so, but let's ask a question. Can a fish swallow a man? Well, there are two <clears throat> in our day and time. Great sea creatures that are big enough to swallow a human being. And then somebody will say, well, how can a person live? Well, I don't know. God can take care of all that. I don't know why we have to always sign to, you know, the enlightenment is just ruin things. I had to scientifically examine everything instead of just, just with some mysticism and the right kind of mysticism, just mystery, just believe that God just, just has done some pretty awesome stuff in times past. Well, the blue whale or the sulfur bottom whale is, a, is the largest mammal, largest fish in the ocean. It can reach up to 100 feet. Uh, it's one of those that when you see it blow the, the, the air out as it comes to the surface, it can blow the water out and stuff uh, up to 30 foot in the air. That chamber in the blue whale's head is 14 feet long and 7 feet high. Can a human being fit inside of that? Where there's air inside of that, yes. Well, the blue whale, in case you think, well, not, not a possibility, the blue whale has up to six stomachs. Where you pass through, there's just stomach after stomach that's in there, and so there's six different chambers within the blue whale. Then there's something we know that's called the whale shark. Gigantic. As a matter of fact, they found a whale shark one time in the early 1900s that in the belly of the whale shark, it had a 15-foot great white shark. That when they cut it up, that's what, what was, or well, it actually, I think on this one, they had actually spit, um, uh, as it was dying, spit it out. In case you don't 
you were to say, well, that's just kind of, okay, so physically that might be the case, but are there real cases? Yeah, there are. Let me share a few with you. Dr. Ransom Harvey, who's a researcher, um, he said one, di- one time he described something that, that he knew to be true, that a dog was lost overboard from a ship and it was found in the, hell of a, in the head of a whale six days later alive and barking. It was inside barking. Frank Bullen, uh, who wrote The Cruise of the Cathalot, tells of a shark 15 feet in length that was found in the stomach of a whale, as I stated a while ago. The late Dr. Dixon stated that a museum in Beirut, Syria, had the head of a whale shark big enough to swallow the largest man who's ever lived that history has recorded. The famous French scientist M.D. de Parvel writes of James Bartley, who in the region of the Falkland Islands near South America was supposed to have been drowned at sea. Two days later after his disappearance, his disappearance the sailors caught the catch of a whale, and when they cut it up, he was inside the stomach, unconscious but alive, and they woke him up, and he lived for a number of years after that. Dr. Harry Rimmer, president of the Research Science Bureau of Los Angeles, writes of another case. In Literary Digest, we notice an account of an English sailor who was swallowed by a gigantic whale shark in the English Channel. Briefly, the account stated that in an attempt to harpoon one of those monstrous sharks, the guy fell overboard, and then the whale shark turned and came back and swallowed the man whole. When the shark was caught a couple of days later, the sailors opened him up to find the man unconscious as well, but alive. He was rushed to the hospital where he was suffering from shock, but he lived. Uh, This Dr. Rimmer met with the guy in 1926, and his physical appearance was weird. Every bit of hair on his body was gone. Couldn't grow hair anymore, and he had yellowish-brown spots all over his skin from being inside the well. Further research talks about uh, two instances of men in modern times being swallowed alive and living to tell the story. One of these cases was subjected to careful scientific investigation by the British and two, scientific, uh, two French scientists. A whaler disappeared after a small boat was upset by a harpooned whale. Two days later, he was found in the dissected whale's stomach. And except for a two-week period of shock and permanent bleaching of his skin from the gastric juices, the man lived a normal life thereafter. So it's happened. And I don't even think we need that to believe that it happened because we believe that it's true. One of the big things that people say this is not true is to say, well, he wasn't in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, be careful. If you're in there Friday and Saturday and Sunday, that's at night, that's three nights, correct? So I think, or even three days, I think we need to be careful that it has to equal 72 hours. And so I think this is true. And I think it's an incredible miracle. And watch this. God loved a running rebellious prophet that he appointed a great fish to swallow him up. And inside, we're going to have to wait two weeks. Two weeks from now, we're going to leave Jonah inside the well for two more weeks, okay? And uh, we'll see him come out in a little bit. And in the darkness... Whether he's in the top of that blue well, if that's the case, in that air hole, in the darkness, Jonah thinks about God. And Jonah chapter 2 is amazing. It's pretty incredibly amazing. Let me close with this. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor, he wrote this. He said, I was walking in the garden one bright morning, and a breeze came through and set all the flowers and leaves a-fluttering. Now, that is the way the flowers talk. So I pricked up my ears and listened. 
presently an old elder tree said, Flowers, shake off your caterpillars. Why, a dozen said altogether, for they are like some children who always say why when they are told to do anything. The elder said, If you don't, they will eat you up alive. So the flowers set to shaking, set themselves a shaking until the caterpillars were shaken off. But in the middle of the beds was a beautiful rose who shook off all of the caterpillars but one. And she said to herself, oh, this one's a beauty. I'll keep this one on me. The elder tree overheard her and said, one caterpillar is enough to spoil you. But, said the rose, look at his brown and crimson fur and his beautiful black eyes and his scores of precious little feet. I want to keep him. Surely one will not hurt me. A few mornings after, Spurgeon says, I passed by the rose again. There was not one whole leaf on her. Her beauty was gone. She was all but killed and had only life enough to weep over her folly. And while the tears stood like dewdrops on her tattered leaves, the rose said this, Alas, I didn't think one caterpillar would kill me. And the point is this this morning. Sin is a destroyer. And if you're running from God today in this room, I have good news. He's pursuing you. But he may let you run a little bit further. And if you run a little bit further, you're going to cause devastation to people around you. And I want to just, I just want to say in love to you today, quit running. Quit running. You're not going to find anything away from God. We're going to find life in God. And Jonah had every opportunity to repent. And it wasn't until God jerked the leash and he pointed a fish to swallow Jonah that Jonah finally got his attention and what he needed to do and what he needed to think on. And I just want to plead with you today as your pastor. I want to plead with you today. I want to plead with your soul today. Will you quit running? Will you quit running from God? Because you don't want to you don't want to be swallowed by fish. I'm thinking. I'm thinking you don't want to do that. None of us do. And yet if he does that, it's because he loves. And he's going to try and get our attention. And to call us back to himself. Well, that's how Jonah 1 ends. It's not pretty, but it's where he is. Don't run. If you were to say to me, what's the application today? I would say to you, don't be like Jonah. That's, that's the deepest spiritual point I could give you today. Do not be like him. There is no life running unless you're running to the arms of God. Let's pray.